Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. Listeners looking to construct an investment portfolio that produces an income may want to consider looking towards Asian equities. Today's guest tells us more about the ripe dividend landscape in the region and discusses investment opportunities ranging from technology to insurance. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Jochen Breuer, manager of the Elite Rated Fidelity Asian Dividend Fund. Thank you for joining us today, Jochen. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start with the fund itself. Um, it aims to provide what's called a cross-cycle performance, which in a nutshell means it, it aims to do well no matter what's going on in the sort of wider Asian or indeed global economy. Um, for the listeners, maybe just explain how you, you go about this and what sort of companies fit the sort of stereotypical mold for this. Yeah, I think that's a great starting point. So when I took over stewardship of the fund around six and a half years ago, really we set out to achieve three key outcomes for, for our clients. The first being, as you mentioned, outperformance of the index through the cycle. Secondly, to deliver an attractive headline dividend yield, which at the moment is around 4% on the fund and dividend growth over time. And thirdly, to achieve this with lower risk characteristics than the market, and with that, I mean a relatively lower drawdown in falling markets. So the focus is really to deliver an attractive risk-adjusted total return, where the dividend is an important part of that total return over time. And the fund itself is fairly concentrated in nature, so around 30 to 50 names um, over time, and it's managed without any reference to the benchmark. And the average holding period, I would say, is um, three to four years of the companies we own. So it's it's very much a, a patient approach to investing. Mm-hmm. Now, as one would expect uh, for a dividend strategy such as ours, uh, the fund does exhibit certain style characteristics. Um, so because of the type of companies we invest in and our focus on downside protections through the focus on valuation, um, the fund tends to behave more defensively. So it tends to outperform in falling markets, but it lacks in strongly rising markets. And for example, 2020 was such a difficult year for us as sectors such as the Chinese internet companies strongly outperformed and those tend to pay limited dividends and therefore are not really featured much in our investable universe. But we managed to recover the performance and some more in 2021 and 2022. Now, our investment approaches is very much uh, bottom-up focused, and we have more than 50 analysts here on the ground uh, in Asia, um, which are constantly meeting and analyzing companies. And with their help and through um, strong uh, stock picking, uh, we can hopefully deliver uh, against those three outcomes that I mentioned uh, at the outset. And I'm glad to say that we have delivered against those over the last six and a half years. Um, You also asked me, obviously, um, what type of companies more specifically we're looking for. And a number of characteristics um, I would would highlight. The first being that the companies um, we invest in tend to have strong business modes um, and therefore can generate attractive and resilient through cycle returns. They tend to have conservatively managed balance sheets and good cash generation. Uh, And we're looking for good governance frameworks. And on top of that, management teams that have shown good capital allocation in their businesses, where the dividend is an important part of that capital allocation um, framework. And management that manage these companies in a sustainable manner. Um, The final point I would make is, is on valuation. So 
is not quality at any price, but we're very valuation conscious. So the focus is really on protecting the downside to achieve um, attractive risk-adjusted returns for our fund holders. Okay. Um, I'm going to touch on a couple of themes on, on the back of that. Firstly, um, technology. You know, you, you mentioned that you, you think technology could enter recovery phase in the second half of this year. Um, why do you think that is and what impact have to your portfolio? And I ask that in the wider context of you mentioned that defensive positioning. I think you've got about, I don't know, just, just shy of 20% in technology where you had about that, that sort of number. I mean, does tech sort of become, a, is tech a defensive investment now? Or how, how do you maybe just, just give us a view on that, um, please? Yeah, no, absolutely. So as I mentioned, technology stocks are around 18% of, of the fund today, but we have been adding to those holdings um, over the last few months. And I would classify that part of the portfolio certainly more within the, the cyclical bucket within the portfolio. Um, and if we kind of go back uh, and think about what, what has happened, um, I guess listeners will be aware that the wider technology space benefited from increased customer demand during uh, COVID, which um, um, while, while supply chains uh, were impacted and therefore um, we have seen those disruptions. But really over the last 12 months, uh, some of those trends have reversed. So while supply chain issues have largely been resolved, I would say. Demand, for example, for PCs, notebooks, uh, and uh, mobile phones has weakened. And hence, we have seen kind of inventory levels of components and also of end products increase. But uh, I think crucially, we believe that we are past the worst here and have, for example, started to see those inventory levels uh, starting to come down. And hence, we think from a cyclical backdrop, this is supportive. And at the same time, valuations for a lot of these hardware technology names, which are really leaders in the industry here in Asia, um, those names uh, lo look attractive. And if I um, could maybe talk about one stock that, that we like, it would be um, Samsung Electronics. Um, many uh, will probably know Samsung's um, consumer products, such as TVs or fridges, but by far the biggest a profit contributor is Samsung's memory division, in particularly uh, in particular DRAM memory, which goes into notebooks, mobile phones, servers, and so on. So, so why do we like Samsung? I guess the first um, point would be from a structural perspective. So, memory is an industry that has consolidated over time, um, and today there are really only three scale players left in the industry in the form of Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix in Korea, and then you have Micron in the US. And that makes for a much, much more rational market than it used to be the case. And I think we're seeing that uh, playing out right now. So as a result of the weakness in demand that I talked about um, and the depressed profitability, these three industry players have now started to reduce capacity utilization and capacity expansions. And we think this is really the last step that is required for an ultimate um, kind of cyclical recovery in that industry. And Samsung kind of coming back to your point about um, cyclical versus defensive, we think Samsung is in a very good position to weather the storm here as, as it's really the lowest cost producer within the industry. And it also has a very strong balance sheet. In fact, uh, almost a quarter of its market cap is currently sitting in cash. 
And for an income investor like myself, what's important really is that they have an absolute dividend policy. So despite the cyclical weakness, they're paying a stable dividend. Um, and that obviously um, is very important for me as, a, as an investor. And lastly, and I think I mentioned it before, is really on valuations, which we think are very attractive and provide a very positive risk reward profile for, for the stock. Just quickly, does that mean a great about Samsung might almost be considered cyclical and defensive, if you see what I mean, because it's in such a strong position? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think, I mean, cyclicality comes um, obviously from the underlying uh, industry they, they operate in, which is a cyclical industry. But then when you look at the strengths of the company in terms of its balance sheet strengths, um, uh, and, and for example, all those, also the shareholder return profile, I think that makes it um, and, and lastly, also the valuation um, that that the stock is trading on um, makes it very attractive uh, from a, from that perspective, and uh, makes gives a very attractive risk reward profile, which we see. I'm going to turn to a sector which perhaps has not been seen as very attractive for the best part of 15 years. So, um, eight banks. Let, let's talk about a couple right. of Asian banks. Insurers um, have the banking issues that have sort of been reverberating in the US and Europe been felt in Asia. Um, I assume you're confident they won't be contagious as you've added. I think it's HSBC has just been added to portfolio. Maybe just give us a bit of an outlook on that and, you know, what you would be watching for if you're not concerned. Yes, absolutely. So, again, financials are roughly 20% of the fund. Um, but when looking at the exposure within that, um, one thing that I would highlight is that historically and also today, the majority of our holdings are non-bank financials. So these would be, for example, leasing companies, um, exchanges, or also selective insurers that we like. Um, why do we prefer those type of companies over banks? Um, really, the reason is that they tend to operate in attractive niches of the market, which have less competition, and therefore the potential to grow faster and generate very attractive um, returns on capital. Um, an example of such a company would be, for example, Chileys in Taiwan, which provides leasing companies for SMEs, so small and medium-sized companies in Taiwan, in China, and also in Southeast Asia. And this is a market that's not really being served by the large banks, um, as the business model is too specialized and too labor-intensive for those uh, larger banks to compete. And as a result, Chileys can generate attractive returns and grow at very uh, decent rates. So when it then comes to the banks um, uh, and to your question, I would say the first thing I'd say is that those issues that we've seen in the regional banks in the US and also around Credit Suisse in, the, in Europe have uh, really only limited read across for, for Asian banks, I would say. And the reason being that most banks in Asia have very strong capital positions. Um, they are subject to strong regulations. Um, plus, they have a very large, stable uh, depo deposit franchise in most cases. Um, there are obviously other drawbacks, such as the fact that a large part of the bank's universe in Asia are state-owned enterprises, and hence not necessarily only managed for the benefit of minority shareholders. And this is why we are very selective when investing in, in banks in, in the region. Um, the one bank you mentioned, obviously, that we, we have been adding um, over the last few months is HSBC. Um, and, and there are a number of characteristics that we like here. Um, the first being the restructuring of the business that um, uh, management has done over the last few years, selling a number of 
underperforming non-core assets and geographies, which we believe will lead to stronger uh, and improved return profiles of the group. Um, and because of those uh, restructurings, um, the other thing is that Asia now um, is more than 50% of, of the business and it's obviously a higher growth um, kind of market. And lastly, I would say the capital position um, attracts us, which is very strong and allows management to return significant funds to shareholders through dividends and, and buybacks. Uh, in fact, uh, they announced a, a 2 billion US dollar buyback today. Uh, and we believe 30% of the current market cap, cap uh, market capitalization will come back to shareholders over the next three to four years. Um, <clears throat> just just on the landscape, obviously your focus is on individual companies, but you, you also have to take a look at the, the macro environment they operate in. It can't be ignored. So given that in mind, we've had a challenging couple of years with China and the ripples that they cause. And we discussion about how big those ripples are, perhaps changes. Um, obviously, there's a lot of divergence between US and Chinese monetary policies. Um, and I just wonder how how that and China in general impacts the, the wider holdings. Could, could you maybe explain the are the ripples as big as perhaps they may have been seen to be 15, 20 years ago? You know, just, just how much do you have to batten down the hatches every time China sort of really kicks off? <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit of kind of backdrop. Um, I'd say probably listeners know that uh, China has been in a very restrictive kind of zero COVID policy for almost two years, which only really ended at the end of last year. And, and since then, we've seen a rapid reopening of the economy supported really by monetary easing, but also by fiscal policies. And crucially, I think China is not seeing the inflationary pressures that um, we experience in the West. Um, and, and that makes those, pos uh, those policies really feasible in the first place. Um, on top of that, we've seen much more supportive regulatory backdrop over the last few months. So we've seen policy support when it comes to, for example, the property sector. And, and clearly, I think we're seeing that the government is supporting the economy wherever it can. Um, while the recovery really has not been all that smooth and partly behind initial expectations, I think the direction of travel um, for the Chinese, Chinese economy um, and the intention of the government re really has been has become clear. Um, now, compare that to the backdrop of Western economies, and I would uh, include Australia, for example, here as well. Um, where monetary policies are restrictive to fight inflation, and hence we are really seeing a slowing consumer and, and corporate environment. Um, from a fund perspective, um, what I would say, how it has impacted um, since last year, we have really been looking for more companies that benefit from the reopening of China, not only in China, but also within the wider region, as China obviously remains by far the largest economic force in, in Asia. And an example would, for example, be regional companies that benefit from an increase in, in Chinese tourism, because one of the trends we have clearly been seeing, I think, over the last um, few months is that the Chinese consumer has strong pent up demand for services, for example, tourism, while demand for goods, especially those larger ticket items, is still somewhat lagging behind. Um Let's turn to dividends. Obviously, um, you're seeing dividend increases this year. What, what's your outlook for, for the rest of, of 2023 and beyond? Are you confident, pensive? Just give us a, a view on that as well, please. 
Yes, sure. Um, so I think one aspect that makes Asia an attractive hunting ground for, for income investors um, really is that it offers attractive headline yields, but it also has good prospects for dividend growth over time. And on the one hand side, for example, you have um, countries such as Australia or Taiwan, which are more mature in nature and also have certain tax advantages or tax incentives for companies to pay higher dividends. But on the other hand, you have some of those more emerging markets uh, where payout ratios are still relatively low and you should see higher dividend growth over time from the companies operating in those countries. So another aspect I think we have seen over time um, is that different governments have encouraged companies to return more cash to shareholders. And that is something we definitely are seeing at the moment with respect to the Chinese state-owned enterprises. Um, when I look at the fund and the dividend announcements of the companies in the fund year-to-date, um, I would broadly say that they have been in line to slightly better than expected. And I think that reflects really kind of the improving fundamentals uh, in Asia with the Chinese reopening and which also uh, results in higher confidence of, of management teams. And to give an example, Swire Pacific is a, is a top um, five holding in the fund. Um, and they have not only decided to initiate a sizable share buyback program a, fund, a few months ago, but also increased their dividend by around 15%. And um, we believe there's ample room um, for more dividend growth going forward as the business um, recovers. And Jochen, can we just finish with a couple of companies and a couple of areas of the market you might be excited about? Just, you know, you, you're very company focused. Let's maybe just get in a couple more beyond the ones you've talked about already that you're particularly excited about at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, so let me talk about maybe Singapore Exchange, um, which has been a holding for a number of years. And this falls into this bucket, which I talked about earlier of non-bank financials. Um, so exchanges, um, we think, are attractive businesses because they tend to have very strong business modes in the form of uh, certain network effects as clients tend to choose the highest liquidity pools and the lowest cost operators uh, to execute their trades. And Singapore Exchange in particular has very dominant positions in a number of derivative and foreign exchange products within the region. Another reason we like it um, is that it's a business that uh, generates high margins, is fairly capital light in nature, and therefore uh, generates a significant amount of cash. And this allows management to grow the business at attractive rates and at the, at the same time return uh, cash back to shareholders in the form of dividends. Um, another maybe a little bit more underappreciated aspect we think is that the exchanges benefit from rising interest rates as they can invest the flow that they keep um, um, for their clients at higher rates in, in the current environment. And, and finally, um, from a portfolio perspective, I think what's, what's also interesting is that um, the exchanges tend to benefit from increased market volatility. So it's also a very attractive stock to own from a portfolio diversification uh, benefit perspective um, as it makes an attractive defensive holding within the fund. Jochen, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris.
The Asian market is one of increasing relevance and importance for equity income investors, and this fund is well-placed to capture that trend. The fund generates not just an above-market yield, but also one that can grow, offering attractive total returns. To learn more about the Fidelity Asian Dividend Fund, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 